Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, it says, Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. In the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we have been presented with several opportunities, and some of you have taken advantage of those opportunities, to know the servant in verses 1 through 6, to share the servant's message in verses 7 through 13. We were given the opportunity to repent in verses 14 through 29. We were given the opportunity to demonstrate care and compassion in verses 30 through 44. But now we're presented with an amazing opportunity. One that I hope that most of you take. But sadly, I know that some will not. You are presented and we are presented with an opportunity to go from immaturity to maturity From insecurity to security, we are going to be provided with an opportunity to grow in faith and dependence upon the servant in verses 45 through 52. Remember in John's gospel, we're told that after the feeding of the 5,000, the people sought to make Jesus a king. And it's highlighted and reinforced in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15. The crowds pressed in upon Jesus and wanted to thrust a crown upon his head. And I suspect that even the twelve disciples were thinking right on. Yeah, it's a good idea. He can turn water into wine. He can make the wind cease. He can open blind eyes and deaf ears. He can dismiss demons. But Jesus refuses to be a temporal king who only meets temporal needs. And Jesus will send the disciples away to across the sea and then he'll go to a remote mountain location to pray. And that evening the howling winds and the gathering clouds will bring about a storm. Because Jesus is about to test the apostles' faith. You'll remember in the Bible that Jonah encountered a storm because he was running away from God and he was in disobedience. But the disciples head straight into the storm, not out of disobedience, but out of obedience. Mark's gospel is told by Peter 
leaves out the episode of Peter walking on the water, but it's included in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 32. The story that Peter chooses to tell Mark emphasizes and records the failure of the disciples to understand the meaning of the storm and the power of Jesus to deliver in the storm and to learn certain lessons that would later prepare them for a lifetime of ministry. We seldom welcome hardship or deprivation or trial or storms. Some of us live under the illusion that there is no storm, there is no trial, there is no problem that could ever get the best of us. Our fathers survived a revolutionary war, a civil war, two world wars, a major depression. Some have survived broken promises and broken hearts and broken dreams. And some of us believe that the power and the resources available to us apart from the Bible, apart from Jesus, are sufficient to carry us and to meet any challenge or bear any burden or defy any ill wind that may blow against us. But if you live long enough, one day a storm will come into your life. If you live long enough to grow teeth, then the chances are you might be kicked in the teeth. There once was a king, a Danish conqueror named Canute, and he felt that his powers, his resources and his will were invincible. And one day a group of his inner circle, his admirers were flattering the pompous king and to demonstrate his power. He ordered his throne and entourage to be taken to the seashore and the tide was rolling in and the waves were threatening to crash in around the king. And in the most regal voice he could muster, he ordered the waves to cease. And they crashed right on top of his head. And then he told his flatterers, behold, how small is the might of kings. Whether we like it or not, there are certain things which will not yield to our control. There's a reason why the Bible speaks and the psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. Warren Wiersbe says, and I quote, spiritual blessings must be balanced with burdens and battles. Otherwise, we become pampered children instead of mature sons and daughters. But make no mistake about it. God is in the process of making you like Jesus. He is committed to conforming you into the image and the likeness of Jesus. Are you willing to meet God in the storm? Are you willing to trust God in the storm? If anything good can be said about a storm, if anything noble can be said about a storm, is that it has the possibility of molding us and shaping us in humility and dependence, causing us to trust the Lord. And it will provide an opportunity for you to move from immaturity to maturity if you'll let it. From insecurity to security, if you let it, the storm will change you. 
It will shatter the illusion that you are in control of your finances, of your health, of your business, of your children, of your country, of yourself. If we seek assurance from anyone or everyone that things are going to be fine, then the reality is that at some point their promises and their resources will be exhausted. And there are some storms that cannot be resisted and that cannot be repelled. And so in this passage of Scripture, we're given five insights that if you will embrace them, it will help you navigate through the storm that will inevitably come. The first is that Jesus set you there. That's what it says in verses 45 through 47. And that Jesus sees you there in verse 48 at the beginning of the of the verse. And that he will come to you in the storm and at the end of verse 48. And that he will speak to you in the storm if you'll let him. In verses 49 through 50. And that he will safely deliver you in the storm. In verses 51 through 52. Let's look again in verse 45. He set you there. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. Remember the context. The people have tried to come and make Jesus a king, but he made his disciples get into the boat. By the way, the verb translated made is anagangzo. It's basically a word which means to compel or to force. And like I said, the urgency seems to come when they come in John chapter 6, verse 15, and we're told that the people are attempting to make Jesus a king by force. And he doesn't want his disciples to get involved with or believe the false political movement which attempts to subvert and undermine God's plan. God's plan wasn't for Jesus to be a political messiah. It wasn't to just simply break the social, political, and economic hold that Rome had on the people. God had a different plan, and God's plan was that he wanted to break the power of sin, the grip of sin inside of your heart and inside of your soul. They want a king and a crown. They want a person who will provide food and clothing and shelter and political and social and economic might. But Jesus has a cross in front of him. Because God's plan is going to include a cross before a crown. He is going to suffer and die. But he's going to rise from the dead. There seems to be two kinds of storms that blow into our lives. There are correcting storms and there are perfecting storms. The correcting storms are those storms that come in order to put you back on track. Remember, God had a plan and a purpose for Jonah, but he was running away. And so God gave him a storm that was meant to get him back on track. And there are perfecting storms. Those are the storms that are 
planned by God in order to get you to a place of submission and humility and dependence upon him. Both, both are intended to bring us from immaturity to maturity and from insecurity to security. The head grows by taking in, but the heart grows by giving out. And there might come a time in your life where God isn't content for you to just be a fat head. But he's expanding your heart. He's placing you in a position of selflessness and sacrifice. And in verse 46, it says, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Jesus set them there. But he will also pray for them. Isn't that good news for you? That the same Savior who set you there will pray for you while you are in that perfecting or correcting storm. Earlier, remember, he fed the multitudes with five loaves, two tiny fish. The people thought, oh, what a perfect king. No taxes, unlimited food, small resources. He can, if he can feed a massive crowd, he can outfit an army. He can overthrow Rome. They want to make him a king, a royal king, but no cross and no suffering. In John 6, 15, it says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain himself alone. Did you know that Jesus intercedes for you right at this very moment? The Bible says that when he died and he rose from the dead, the Bible says he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the father. And right, right now, right at this very moment. He intercedes for you. He's praying for your marriage. He knows how difficult it is. He's praying for your children He's praying for your job. He's praying for your circumstance. He knows about the underemployment and the unemployment. He knows about the diagnosis of cancer. He knows what it's like to have to visit the hospital day after day. So he intercedes. Prayer defeats the devil. Prayer restores the backslider. Prayer strengthens the saint. Prayer imparts wisdom. Prayer bestows peace. Prayer keeps people from sin. Prayer reveals the will of God. And the fact that Jesus sometimes sends us into difficult circumstances doesn't mean that he's abandoned us or forsaken us. And it certainly doesn't mean that he doesn't care. He's praying. Right at this very moment. C. Neil Strait writes, quote, prayer lifts the hearts above the battles of life and gives it a glimpse of God's resources, which spell victory and hope. So let me ask you a question. What do you pray for in the storm? What do you pray when you discover that the diagnosis is cancer? Or what do you pray when you're invited into your boss's office and he says, we're going to have to let you go? What do you pray when your husband of 30 years comes to you and says, I've had enough, and he walks out of the marriage? What do you pray when you have to go pick up your son from the police station? Are you praying for a change in circumstances? 
Do you want the circumstances to be different? Or are you praying for a change of character? Are you crying out to God and saying, Lord, I need you to change my mind and to change my heart. I need the scripture to be fulfilled in my life where Paul wrote and he said, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his dear son. There is a process, a chiseling that is taking place as Jesus is molding you and shaping you. It says in verse 47, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. The Sea of Galilee is seven and a half miles long, and it's about three and a half miles long. And note what the text says. He's there in the middle of the sea. He was alone on the land, and it is pitch black. If Jesus set you there, doesn't it make sense that he can keep you there? You know, I often wonder when I read this text, I I wondered when the storm clouds rolled in and the waves started crashing. I'm wondering why the disciples didn't just turn around. Why didn't they just go back? Why didn't they just simply row, not against the wind, but with the wind and go back where they started? Haven't you ever wanted to do that? The wind is blowing and the waves are crashing and you want to stop. You want to give up. You want to just stop. You want to give up. You want to call it quits. Why row against the storm? Why row against the wind? But they have their instructions. Jesus placed them there. The disciples were to go before him. Jesus placed you there. A sovereign God has placed you in your home and on your job and with your family. A sovereign God has orchestrated the circumstances that you find yourself in. In one sense, Jesus has already gone before us to the other side of the shore. By the way, if your heart belongs to Jesus, if you and God are on father and son or daughter terms, your circumstances are known by God and established by God and governed by God. God governs our lives. God orders our circumstances. And if he set you there, the Bible says... He sees you there. Look at verse 48. It says, then he, that's Jesus, saw them straining at the rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. There's a miracle. Jesus is alone on the mountain. In pitch darkness, he sees into the middle of the lake. Note what it says. Then he saw them straining at the rowing, for the wind was against them. Or he saw that they were distressed, another translation. Or they that they were straining at the oars. They had picked them up and placed them in the water. The Lord Jesus sees everything. Do you want to know why? Because he's God. That's called omnipresence. God knows all. That's called omniscience. God has all power. That's called omnipotence. And because God knows all things and because God has all power and because he loves you, 
You can rest even in the storm. By the way, are you resting in Jesus in the midst of the storm? Are you trusting him right at this very moment? You know, sometimes obedience will bring straining and distress and suffering and persecution. I need you to understand something. It is Jesus who compelled them to get in that boat. It was Jesus who told them to go to the other side. It was Jesus who allowed them to go through the storm. And they are straining and there is stress and there is suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer obeyed God. And wound up in a Nazi prison camp. Corrie ten Boom, author of The Hiding Place and Dutch Patriot, lost many of her family and was herself imprisoned at Ravensbrück concentration camp. Not because she disobeyed God, but because she obeyed God and hid the Jews and refused to just simply allow them to go to the slaughter. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint were young missionaries in South America committed to bringing the gospel to an unreached people group, to a group of people who never, ever even heard of Jesus. And what did it cost them? A spear in the back. And Jim Elliott died face down in the mud and the water. It's amazing to me how someone can read the New Testament And look at the life of Jesus and look at the lives of the apostles and look at the lives of the saints and not see the storms that have blown into their lives or they neglect or ignore or pretend that hardship and difficulty and suffering are the exception and not the rule. But that's not what the Bible says. If somebody told you that being a Christian was easy, they lied to you. But guess what? My worst day as a Christian is better than my my best day as an unbeliever. My worst day as a Christian, as an unbeliever, didn't count peace and joy and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation with the Father. My best day as an unbeliever was filled with darkness and sin and hopelessness. Suffering and sacrifice were going to be a part of the tools that God was going to use to mold and shape. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul writes and he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy To be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, Peter will write, For to this were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. I know you want to follow in his footsteps by the wonderful things that he said and the wonderful prayers that he prayed and the wonderful healings and miracles that took place. But the moment that someone suggests that you're going to follow him in selflessness and sacrifice and hardship, people go, I don't want to follow you there. That's not what I want. 
There's no other way for you to grow up. There's no other way for you to move from immaturity to maturity, from insecurity to security. The Lord knows you and sees you. And he's not blind and he's not impotent and he's not uncaring. He loves you. Watch. Watch what happens as he comes for the disciples in their storm. Look at the at the end of verse 48. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Do you know in the fourth watches in, in the ancient uh, and antiquity of Rome, they would mark the watches in the night with the first watch, the second watch, the third watch, and the fourth watch. And the fourth watch began at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and it would go all the way to 6 o'clock in the morning. You've all probably heard the expression, it's always darkest before the dawn. And Jesus comes at the darkest moment. When it seems hopeless and helpless, God shows up and delivers in the most remarkable way. Like Daniel in the lion's den or the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Often you see the lion's teeth and smell his breath. And you feel the fire all around you, threatening you. And I need to remind you of something. The disciples are tired and they are afraid. Their strength is gone. Remember when we began this passage, Jesus probably sent them and the multitudes away at dusk. He places them in the boat, compels them to get in and pushes them up. And they're halfway through. And that means that they've been rowing for eight hours. Eight hours they have been picking up the oars and placing them in the water. Their strength is gone. They've exhausted their physical resources. The wind and the water continue to bite at their face. And for some of you, you've been picking up the oar and you've been placing it in the water and you wonder if you can pray for your wife one more day, if you can pray for your husband one more day, if you can pray for your marriage one more day, if you can pray for your children for one more day. You're wondering, is there one more visit left inside of me to go to the hospital? You wonder if you can face one more needle. You wonder if you have the heart to submit one more resume. You're hurt and you're empty and you're exhausted. And the light seems to have been out for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, you sense something supernatural is about to take place. He set them there. He sees them there. He comes to them there. And look what happens in verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. And they cried out. Yes, Jesus walked on the water. But most of the time he took a boat. 
in this impossible situation, Jesus does the impossible. He walks on the water. By the way, the ancient Egyptians had a, a language that was very interesting. Some of you know that they wrote in pictographic symbols. And that when they would combine these symbols together, it would form words. And they would have heads of animals. And they would have heads of people. They would have hands and torsos and feet. And one of the symbols that they would use in their ancient writing were waves. And when they wanted to write the word water, they would in pictographic form make a wave. And then when they would take two little human feet and put it on top of the wave. Do you know what that word was in the ancient Egyptian language? Impossible. But that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? People don't walk on water. That can't happen. That's exactly what does happen. Jesus does the impossible to accomplish the impossible. And Jesus walks on the very object that the disciples feared the most. Because guess what? When the storm is blowing and the wind is howling and the water is beating down upon you and the waves are getting ready to consume you, the thing that you think about most is if I go into that water and if I inhale that water, I am going to die. And Jesus walks on the very object that they fear the most. And it's been my experience that often that's exactly what Jesus will do. He will come to you and he will speak to you on the very object that you fear the most. What is it? What is it that you fear? What is it that you're afraid of? Is it the illness? Is it the darkness? Is it the financial distress? Is it the loneliness? Is it the failure? And even though all of those things are important, None of them are as important as the real danger. The real danger isn't that you're going to die. The real danger is that you could die apart from Jesus. The real danger is that you could live your life and never experience what it means to have forgiveness of sin and redemption and reconciliation with God. What you fear most may become what God will use to come to you and to comfort you. And he comes in the darkest hour. Jesus comes when strength and hope are gone. And then Jesus does what is impossible. He defeats the thing that you are the most afraid of. And look what it says in verse 50, for they all saw him. And they were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Listen to the voice of Jesus. It's me. Don't be afraid. By the way, over and over again in the New Testament, there's a reoccurring theme that you'll have Jesus speaking. Don't be afraid. And why do you suppose... The gospel writers placed those words in his mouth. It's because they were afraid. They were terrified. Can you imagine? Jesus comes 
and he speaks. <laughs> a Christian captain of an ocean going vessel was in the midst of a terrific storm. And terrified, one of the passengers said, what will we do if the ship sinks? And the captain smiled and he said, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be embraced in the everlasting arms of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know that's not what you want to hear the captain say. But sometimes the ship is going down. As a matter of fact, when it says in verse 54, they all saw him and were troubled. The word troubled doesn't quite capture the meaning of the text. You know, I'm troubled when the Broncos are behind in the fourth quarter. I'm troubled when the green chili starts speaking to me. The word translated trouble is the passive Greek word terrazzo. And it means terrified. Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Because you don't expect to see your friend walking on the water. You know, it reminded me of an episode of a, of a Rod Serling film that I saw in the, in the early 60s. And there was a movie remade from Rod Serling's hit TV series, The Twilight Zone, which featured an episode with this actor named John Lithgow. And in it, he plays this nauseated and terrified passenger. And he gets on the plane and his worst fears are realized when he peers through the portal outside of the plane. And there, wild-eyed and screaming, is someone on the Wing of the plane. Now, if you're a pilot or a passenger and you're at 30,000 feet and you see someone hanging on to the wing of your plane, that's not normal. That doesn't happen. And by the way, it's not very comforting when you hear screams and terrifying laughter. But Jesus brings words of comfort and hope. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. You know what's important about that? The words that Jesus speaks make all the difference in the world. The words of Jesus make all the difference when the storm is raging and it's not a ghost. It's not an angel who comes in the storm. It is the servant who comes speaking God's word. And then he begins to fill the people with a sense of courage and comfort and hope. Has it been a while since you heard the Savior's voice in the storm? Have you even bothered to listen? Did you pause and did you say, Lord, you set me here. Lord, you see me here. Lord, speak to me in the storm. You know, two scriptures have served me well in life's storms. I've shared them when they've blown in my own life. 
In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul writes, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. It is the Word of God. That's where the patience and the comfort comes. And in Romans 15, 13, it says, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if there is a conspicuous lack of joy, and if there is a conspicuous lack lack of peace in your life, may I suggest to you that maybe what you need is not just simply a green burrito, but you need a great big dose of hope. A supernatural provision. God's word speaks to us in the storm. It's me. I'm here. And you don't have to be afraid. But they were afraid. Just like some of you. It is absolutely paralyzing when you think about your husband leaving you. It is absolutely paralyzing when you think about your wife quitting the marriage. It is absolutely terrifying when you think about losing your job. It is absolutely terrifying when you have to go down to the police station and pick up your son or your daughter. And you wonder how you're going to be able to survive. But God's word will speak to you. When times are difficult, the very worst thing that you can do is cut yourself off from the resources that you need most. And you need the promises of God. And you need the patience and the comfort of the scriptures. Return to the word of God. Some of you have been estranged from God and it's time that you came back. Listen to God's instructions. And look what it says in verse 51. He safely delivers you in the storm. It says that he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. In modern language, we might see the way my friend Raul Reese would say, their minds were completely blown. That really captures the meaning of the text. Their minds were frozen by the events that had just taken place. Not only had Jesus come to them walking on the water, but when he got into the boat, the wind ceased and the water quieted. John's gospel adds this additional comment in John chapter 6, verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going, unquote. There were two more miracles. It wasn't just simply walking on the water. It was the storm stopped and they found themselves in the place where they needed to be. And that's exactly what you can rest assured. That the moment that Jesus gets into the boat with you, he will take you exactly where you need to be. You see, when Jesus delivers in the storm, Jesus delivers in the storm. And that's part of the point. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33 adds this additional fact, quote, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. 
You see, the storm did what it was supposed to do. There was a maturation process that needed to take place. The disciples needed to move from a place of insecurity to security. They needed to move from a place of immaturity to maturity. They needed to come to grips with the identity of Jesus. In verse 52, it says, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. The idea being, how does a person take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 plus people? There's something odd going on here. They understood that there was something powerful about Jesus when he opened blind eyes and deaf ears and he cleansed the leper and he brings dead people back to life and he has power over disease and death and demons and even nature itself. And at some point, you have to come to grips that this is no ordinary rabbi from the Galilee. Perhaps the words written in Job may have come to their remembrance. In Job chapter 9, verse 8, it says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be numbered. When he passes me, I cannot see him. And when he goes by, I cannot perceive him. There they are. They're picking up the oars over and over again. The wind is blowing. The water is beating at their face and they almost missed him. They almost missed him because they didn't understand who he was. And right at this very moment, Jesus is passing by. And you might miss him. If all you think about is your failed marriage, if all you think about is your disease, if all you think about is your family crisis, if all you think about is your financial crisis, if all you think about is the circumstances that you find yourself in and how much you hate it. And you never look up. And you completely forget. That he set you there. And that he sees you there. And that he's willing to speak to you in the circumstance that you find yourself in. And to save you. The storm had brought a new understanding of their friend Jesus. Deliverance may not always take the form that you desire. But the servant will deliver on his terms, in his timing, when the children of Israel found themselves in the fiery furnace, they remembered the words of King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to throw you in a place that is so hot that no one can survive. And you'll remember the children of Israel said that the three children, they, they said, look, whether we are delivered from the flames or whether we're delivered in the flames. Make no mistake about it. No matter how this goes down, we're going to be away from you and we're going to be in the presence of the true and the living God. No wonder we can sing the song. 
blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Death for Christians is never a hopeless end, but rather it's the beginning of an endless hope. Death for Christians is never a hopeless end, but rather the beginning of an endless hope. Kent Hughes makes this remarkable observation, quote, If we are obedient to Christ, there'll be plenty of storms. There'll be danger and difficulty and weariness and exposure and anxiety and dread and sadness. We will be open to an index of sorrows and stresses which are unknown to the uncommitted heart. But take cheer. Christ sees all and knows when we feel that we are alone and fear that no one knows or no one cares. He prays for us. Even while we're in the storm, he comes to us in the midst of the gale, treading on the very problems that afflict us. I don't know who wrote this but I've used it many times. Sometimes we must be hurt in order to grow. We must fail in order to know. We must lose in order to gain. Some lessons are learned best only through pain. Sometimes our vision clears only after our eyes are washed with tears. Sometimes we have to be broken so we can be tender, sick so we can rest and think better. On things more important than work or fun. Trip near death so we can assess how we've ran. Sometimes we have to suffer suffer lack so we can know God's provision. Feel another's pain so we can have a sense of mission. So take heart, my friend. If you don't understand today, instead of grumbling, ask God what he means to say. In order to learn, you must endure and learn to see the bigger picture. In order to grow, you must stand, look beyond the hurt to God's loving hand and take what is good and give what is best. And on this blessed thought, rest. As your anxious heart with questions, wait. God's hand only gives what his loving heart dictates. He set you there. He sees you there. He will speak to you there. And make no mistake about it. When the timing is perfect and just right. He will deliver you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the person whose arms are weary and who is completely exhausted. Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will remind them that Jesus is more than willing to get into the boat and to speak. Heavenly Father, I pray that we'll have the courage to listen to the words that he has to say. And for the person who is in the most difficult storm of all, the raging, blowing winds of sin and selfishness 
and rebellion. Lord, I pray that that man, that one woman will come to a place of surrender and submission to you. That, Lord, they'll see the stupidity that to live a life unforgiven is no kind of life at all. And, Lord, I pray that even now you will extend an invitation to them that, Lord, you will press gently but firmly at the very soul and core of their being. And you'll remind them that you're willing to love them and forgive them. Heavenly Father, that you're completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. And that you're willing to forgive them because of the cross of Calvary. And so, Lord, I pray that they would extend that you would extend that invitation, that they would hear your voice and that they would accept the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that's available because of Christ's death. And for the person in the storm, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them even now and that they would hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.